Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning to all the people joining us online. Thanks for being a part of our service. Grab a Bible and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew in the 24th chapter. While you're turning there, if you had a little bit of difficulty getting on the parking lot today, I apologize. That's my fault. It went a little bit long in the first service this morning. Uh, I didn't want to, but after the third standing ovation, I couldn't say no. And I had to continue. It's good to be back after being gone for four weeks. I appreciate all the guys on staff who filled in while I was gone. I listened to all their sermons. I thought they did a great job. As we come back together this weekend, we rejoin, as Johnette just said, our study through the Gospel of Matthew called Let's Talk About Jesus by looking at a new section that is very brief and that is just two chapters long, but it'll be multiple messages. It's chapters 24 and 25. We're going to call this Signs because in those two chapters, Jesus talks about His second coming. Let me just remind you of what brought us to this. Matthew chapter 21 is a significant chapter, significant point in the Gospel of Matthew because we see the triumphal entry. So Jesus is entering Jerusalem for the final time, and He's just days away from His death on the cross. And He's very busy over the course of the next few days. He, we have the triumphal entry. He clears the temple. He runs out all those who are buying and selling. He curses a fig tree and then uses that fig tree to teach a spiritual truth to His disciples. He is teaching in the temple. The religious leaders confront Him. They demand to know where He gets the authority to, does the things, to do the things rather that He does. And he, he looks at them and He shares three very powerful parables about judgment that are aimed directly at them. And so He's, he's turning the tables on them. They're coming to confront Him and He confronts them about judgment and about their sinfulness in a very powerful way. And then He turns and this is Matthew chapter 23, to all of the folks that are gathered there in the temple, and he unleashes his sharpest and his harshest words of criticism against the spiritual leaders, the religious leaders of the Jews. And he basically says, you're nothing more than a bunch of religious frauds. And then he leaves the temple. And that's where we pick up our text. And because we've got so much to cover, I'm just going to stop right there and ask you, if you've got your Bibles open, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture this morning. It's Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 14. You follow along as I read. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when His disciples came up to Him to call His attention to its buildings, the buildings of the temple. Do you see all these things He asked? I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will, will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then, Jesus says, the end will come. All right, there it is. You can go ahead and be seated. And as always, we ask for God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of His Word. Before we turn our attention to the text, let me just offer up what might best be called a word of warning. 
Jesus didn't give us this passage of Scripture and other passages related to the end times as some kind of a puzzle or a riddle. And by the way, this passage is commonly referred to as the Olivet Discourse because as we just saw, Jesus was seated on the Mount of Olives as He shared these words. This is Jesus' second longest recorded sermon and the longest answer that He ever gave to a question. But He didn't give us this passage as some kind of a riddle or some kind of a puzzle, and He didn't give us this passage so we could somehow pinpoint the specific time of His return. He gave us this passage to do three things. Number one, to tell us how things will be before He comes. Number two, to tell us how we should live until He comes again. And then number three, to tell us that judgment is coming, so we better be good stewards of the time and the opportunities that He's entrusted to us until He comes again. See, here's the problem that many Christians run into when it comes to studying passages and talking about passages of Scripture related to the second coming and end times, and maybe this describes some of you or some of you watching online. Oftentimes, Christians will get so bogged down in the pursuit of information because they're trying to, discern, to determine the exact time of Jesus' return that they completely ignore the application, the important application that comes with these passages of Scripture. But here's what we need to remember. Here's the only thing we need to remember to keep that from happening in our lives. We need to remember that Jesus didn't give us His Word primarily to inform us. Jesus gave us His Word primarily to transform us, right? Everyone say, right. Information is not what we seek. Transformation is what we need. And that's what we have in the pages of God's Word and while there's a whole lot more I could say about this, let's just turn our attention to our text. So chapter 23 ends with Jesus sharing these harsh words about the religious leaders, and then he leaves the temple. And then as we pick the text up in verse 1 of chapter 24, we see the disciples calling his attention to the buildings of the temple. Why did they do that? Well, you have to go back to the end of chapter three to under, or 23 rather to understand that. Because this is what Jesus says at the very end of Matthew 23. This is verses 37 through 39. Just listen as I read. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chick under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. He's talking about the temple there, friends. He says, look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's verse 38. It's that one phrase, look, your house is left to you desolate. That's the key here. It's a reference to the temple. And I'm sure the disciples, after hearing that, were wondering in light of this magnificent, spectacular building, the temple, and that's what it was, friends. I'm sure they were wondering how in the world it could ever become desolate. And so, in the beginning of chapter 24, they call his attention to the building. Look at the temple, Jesus. How could this ever be desolate? And Jesus surprises them in verse 2 of Matthew 24 by saying, do you see all these things? Again, the temple. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And listen, friends, what Jesus said was literally fulfilled in A.D. 70 when the Roman armies came in and completely destroyed the city of Jerusalem, every part of it, burned it, destroyed every part of it. In fact, researchers, and some of us will be there later this fall, researchers have discovered the very stones of the temple lying on the western side of the Temple Mount where they had been thrown down by the Roman soldiers over 2,000 years ago. Well, this is shocking to the disciples. 
And so they come to him again a little later as he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. Remember, this is the Olivet Discourse. And in chapter 24 and verse 3, they come and they ask Jesus, when will this happen and what will be the signs of your coming and the end of the age? And what Jesus does next, friends, is he gives them six signs, six very specific signs that will lead to his second coming and the end of the age. And what I'm going to do is I'm just, you can see in the bulletin insert this morning, I'm just going to give you all six of those. We're going to have to move through them quickly. I'll do that as quickly as I can, but as thoroughly as I can. If you're someone who likes to take notes, then go ahead and write down next to number one, the very first sign that Jesus gives them, and we'll call this sign spiritual deception. These signs, by the way, are found in verses 4 through 14. Look back at verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. And so Jesus, who had just called the religious leaders a bunch of religious frauds, tells us that one of the signs of his coming will be a growing number of religious frauds, and as a result, spiritual deception will be on the rise because spiritual gullibility among people like you and me will be on the rise as well. And this is not just something that Jesus says will happen. This is the truth that's reiterated in other parts of the New Testament. In fact, look at the screen in these words that Paul wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul says the Spirit, note that there's a capitalization there. This is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Now, we might be tempted to ask how in the world could something like this happen, but the answer, friends, is not complicated We live in a time today where many people have rejected and turned away from truth, even people who claim to be Christians. We live in a time when there's no shortage of spiritual leaders, and I put those words in quotations in my notes. We live in a time where there's no shortage of spiritual leaders who promote what could only be called a revisionist theology aimed at taking what God says is right and making it wrong, and what God says is wrong and making it right. We see that around us all the time. Because So many Christians in the world today are biblically illiterate, even people who spent years and years in church, they're deceived into believing these false teachings. In fact, I can't believe the number of times, and maybe you can relate to this, where I'll read some kind of article or some kind of report about Christians or about a Christian organization like a school or some parachurch ministry offering a biblical response or taking a biblical response to some social issue of the day, and people, as a result, are shocked and outraged. They can't believe that that's happening. And it's not just non-Christians who are shocked and outraged. Oftentimes, it's people who claim to be Christians as well because they either don't know or they don't care what the Bible has to say about the fundamental issues of life and fundamental issues of morality. But it's not just revisionist theology that twists and distorts the truth of God's Word that's the problem. We also live in a culture today who has chosen to value, in many cases, tolerance over truth. And once again, many people, including those who claim to be Christians, fall in line with that practice. And this is the world that we live in, and this is the world that our children will inherit. This is the world that our grandchildren will inherit. Let that sink in for just a moment. But here's the most important thing I can say about this. As bad as it may be today, and I want you to look at me and listen really close, it's only going to get worse. Right down next to number two, the second sign Jesus gives, and that's international conflict. Look back at verse 6 in the first part of verse 7. Jesus goes on. He says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but 
the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Now that phrase, you will hear, that begins verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. In the original language of the New Testament literally reads like this, you will be hearing, meaning that it will be constant. Jesus is saying you will be constantly and continually hearing about wars and rumors of wars. He's describing in an age of unending commotion and unending unheable, un- upheaval, rather, which in many ways, many people can say describes the reality of the modern-day world we live in today. Wars and rumors of wars all around us. I mean, what comes to your mind when I name places like this, Rwanda and Cambodia and Chechnya and Serbia and Kosovo and Lebanon and Iraq and Kashmir and Northern Ireland and Somalia and Haiti and Kuwait and Afghanistan and Pakistan and who knows how many other Middle Eastern countries. What comes to your mind when you hear the names of those countries? Let me ask you an honest and sincere question and you give an honest and sincere answer in your heart. Have you ever noticed that the level of conflict and the level of violence in and around our world has grown to be so great that when you hear about it or you read about it, it doesn't even move you any longer because it's just a matter of fact. It's just an everyday reality of life. I just did some cursory research on the reality of conflict in the world today, and this is what I found. Over 108 million people were killed in wars throughout the 20th century alone. In 2017, over 68.5 million people were displaced from their homes as a result of war, particularly in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and in Myanmar and Syria. Many of those people from Myanmar live here in South Indianapolis. There are Chin brothers and sisters. We have a Chin church that's going to hold a worship service upstairs in the chapel in just a couple of hours. The UNHCR, that stands for United Nations High Commission for Refugees, estimates that over 44,000 people are forced to leave their homes every single day as a result of violence and conflict. And I'll stop myself there because there's so much more we could say about this. But let me go back to something I said just a moment ago with regard to spiritual deception, the first sign that marks the second coming of Jesus. While the case could be made that this is the reality of our modern-day world. I'm talking now about international conflict, just like with spiritual deception. I want you to listen to me close. The most important thing I can tell you is it's going to get much, much worse. Right down next to number three, natural disasters. We go back to the last part of verse 7 through verse 8. Jesus says there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. And then he says one of the most interesting things We'll talk about this in a moment. In this passage, he says, all these are the beginning of birth pains. Now, many manuscripts, I've got my NIV Bible, my 1984 version of the NIV Bible with me today. Many manuscripts, and as a result, maybe some of the Bibles that you're reading this morning will also add the word pestilences there to famines and earthquakes. In fact, I've got a King James Study Bible that I keep on my desk that I use when I prepare my messages, and my King James Study Bible reads like this, there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. What's a pestilence? A pestilence is an outbreak of disease on an epidemic level. Now, here's the deal. I think we would all agree on this. Famines and earthquakes and outbreaks of these diseases have been with us from the beginning of time. You can read about these things all the way back in the pages of the Old Testament. They're here with us today, and they're going to be here with us tomorrow. And so while these things, as bad as they might be today, don't necessarily mean the last days are upon us, Jesus says that these things are like birth pains. In other words, these things are a signal to something that's about to happen. 
His use of the words birth pains there is a great illustration for how we should view the signs that accompany or lead to, rather, His second coming. When a woman is pregnant, she knows from the calendar, she knows from a visit to the doctor's office when her baby is due, at least for the most part, pretty much when her baby is due. And as that day approaches, her body will begin to send her signals, specific signals that will mark the time of her, of her child's birth. And those signals are called labor pains. That's what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 24. Now, I'm going to push the pause button. I'm going to say to all the ladies that are here, all the ladies that are listening, I'm going to talk about labor pains, but I want to confess I don't have a clue what labor pains are like, okay? <laughs> don't hold that against me. If I say something stupid, just chalk it up to that's just another stupid thing that our pastor said, because I'm telling you I'm completely uninformed about this, all right? I'm not going forward until I hear an all right from the crowd. All right. Thank you very much. Here we go. Having said that, <clears throat> labor pains will often begin with low intensity and frequency. Sometimes they can go on for several days and suddenly stop. Sometimes they start and stop several times. This is what doctors call false labor. But eventually those labor pains will begin in earnest, and as time passes, they become more frequent with greater intensity until finally with one great burst, a baby is born. Jesus is telling us that something like that will happen at the end of this age. And while there are people who spend a lot of time today trying to say that the things that we're experiencing in the world today are the fulfillment of these signs, there's no way, there's no possible way for us to know if that's true because we can't know historically when these labor pains, to use Jesus' words, began or how long they will last. But I'm going to tell you this, and I'm going to sound like a broken record when all this is over. There is no doubt in my mind with regard to all the things that we've already talked about here that Jesus has mentioned, spiritual deception and international conflict and natural disasters, there's no doubt in my mind that regardless of what it might be like in the world today, it will get much, much worse before Jesus returns. Now, I will tell you this morning, and this won't be a surprise to many of you because we've talked about it before, but I will tell you this morning that I hold personally, to an end times belief that the second coming of Christ will be preceded by an unprecedented period of seven years of worldwide suffering and tribulation. And I also believe that the church, I'm talking about true believers, the church will be removed from the earth before that seven-year period of tribulation begins by an event called the rapture. Now, having said that, I understand that not everyone holds that same end time theology, and maybe you don't, and that's fine with me. That's okay. That's okay. I don't, I don't, honestly, I don't really care what you believe about end time theology. Did you hear what I said? <laughs> and the end time theology belief that I hold to is not the historical belief of the independent Christian church of which Mount Pleasant is a part. It's what I believe based on my own study. At the end of the day, the most important question is not what do you believe about end time theology. The most important question is will you be ready when Christ returns. If you're still in this world, will you be ready? Will your life be right with God? That's the, most, that's the only question that will matter when it's all said and done. Now, I don't want to get bogged down on this point, but I'm going to reiterate my belief that as bad as anything might seem today, it will only get worse. Ultimately, it will get worse. Jesus has talked about that already with regard to spiritual deception, with regard to international conflict, and with regard to natural disasters. But we don't know what that will look like. 
I can't tell you exactly what that will look like, but I'll tell you this, and this is just my personal belief, and so make a note of that. This is my personal belief. I tell you that I believe that all of the things that Jesus has talked about, the spiritual deception, this international conflict, and these natural disasters will result in the complete failure ultimately of all the systems, for a lack of a better word, that we put our confidence in for daily life and living. I'm talking about things like governments and authorities and economies and health care and welfare and on and on and on, and the result of that will be mass chaos on some level around the world, and people as a result of that will cry out for a leader who can come along and bring some stability and bring some peace and bring some security and bring some assurance, and as a result, there will be a man who rises up with the promise of all of those things for everyone who chooses to follow him, and millions of people around the world will do that to their eternal regret because that man will end up being the Antichrist that the Bible talks about. That's a whole nother message. I don't have time to talk about the Antichrist this morning. But some of you who've been here for a while will remember that several years ago I preached a sermon series that was all about end times passages of Scripture. It covered a lot of passages in the book of Revelation. It was called Next, and the tagline was Understanding Tomorrow Today. And if you want to learn more about the Antichrist, then you just need to get message four from that series. That message is called The Great Tribulation. I talk about the Antichrist in that message. The rise of the Antichrist will have a direct impact on the next thing Jesus talks about, which is this, right down next to number four. The fourth sign Jesus mentions is fierce persecution. We go back to verse 9, and Jesus says, Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. And friends, that's a difficult verse to read. And the honest truth is it's a verse that probably won't be read in many pulpits around the world, not today or ever, because we live in a time where a lot of people go to church simply to be entertained and made to feel good about themselves rather than to be confronted and convicted by the whole counsel of God's Word, which is a sad indictment on the church today. But Jesus is clear. And this isn't the first time he's talked about this reality. You go all the way back to Matthew chapter 10. It's been a long time since we were in Matthew chapter 10. Remember, we started this journey through Matthew all the way back in November of 2016. But if you go back to Matthew chapter 10 and 22, Jesus says these words to the disciples, you will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And let's just say what Jesus is saying. Let's just be honest. Let's just call out what Jesus is saying. He's telling his followers, his true disciples, to expect the worst. That's what he's saying. He's saying, you'll be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. He's telling followers to expect the worst. And we're seeing more and more of this reality in America today, even though the truth is we've been shielded from this kind of persecution for a long time while Christians, our brothers and sisters in places like China and India and Pakistan and Syria and Myanmar and so many other places have faced brutal persecution as a result of their faith for a long, long time. How many times has Brother Ajay Law stood in this pulpit and told us horrific stories about the way our brothers and sisters in India have been murdered and raped and tortured because of their faith? over and over again. But I feel compelled to repeat once again what I've already said multiple times. No matter how bad it might be today, here or some other part of the world, it's only going to get worse. 
You should take some time today to read through 2 Thessalonians in the New Testament, and in particular, you should spend some time reading chapter 2, because in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul writes about a truth that at the current time, there is something or someone who is currently present in the world holding back or restraining the full-blown power of evil connected to the Antichrist. You don't read the word Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In fact, there are different names that the Antichrist is given in the New Testament. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he's called the man of lawlessness or the lawless one. And Paul says that there's something or someone present in the world today that is restraining on some level the evil, the satanic evil that's in the dark part of this world. There's always been a lot of speculation about what that is, but I'll tell you this morning that I believe without hesitation that it's the Holy Spirit. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that eventually that force, the Holy Spirit, will be removed from the earth. Not that the Holy Spirit will be gone and no more, but he'll be temporarily taken away. And once that happens, the Antichrist, who is nothing less than Satan's Superman, will wreak havoc on the world, and that's going to lead to the fierce persecution that we've just talked about. And it would also lead to the next sign that Jesus gives us, right down next to number five, the words widespread apostasy. Back in verses 10 through 12, we read this. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Jesus says there will be an unprecedented time of religious apostasy in the last days. And in case you're not familiar with the word apostasy, it basically means the desertion of your faith, the falling away, the desertion of your faith. And once again, while I don't know exactly what this looks like, we certainly see signs of it today. We see signs of it today in, in religious leaders who deny fundamental truths like the inerrancy of the Bible. The word inerrancy means free from error. And so if you say that you believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, you say that you believe the Bible is free from error, that it is true in all of its parts. And say they deny things like the inerrancy of the Scriptures, the Bible, the deity of Jesus, the message that faith in Jesus is the only way to be saved, the lostness of all people, the reality of hell, and you can go on and on and on. And listen, friends, I'll be the first to tell you, I hate that this sounds so negative. This is really not what I wanted to do on my first weekend back from break. I'd much rather like to stand up here and preach a message, God is good, you're good, I'm good, we're all good, it's all good, let's go home. But this is the truth of what Jesus has to say. And there's no shortage of churches today who have turned away from any effort to teach the truth of God's Word so that they can give people a message that's more palatable. But what's the help in that from the perspective of eternity? This is something Paul warned about. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, he says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And you know what's the really frightening part about that to me? Is the fact that this happens in such a subtle way. I mean, I read a verse like that, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, and I imagine a church that is overtly false. I imagine a church that celebrates its revised version or its complete departure from biblical truth. But what about churches and leaders who give the truth but not all the truth? What about churches and leaders who create ministry programs that treat people as consumers rather than sheep without a shepherd? What about churches and leaders who present a gospel that makes it sound like it's easy to follow Jesus when he tells us over and over again in the gospels 
that following him is everything but easy. Just before those words that we just read a moment ago in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, where he talked about people gathering around them speakers and teachers and preachers who speak what their itching ears want to hear. This is what Paul said to Timothy. This is verse 2. Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Careful instruction. But once again, as bad as this may be in the world today, it's just going to get worse. And then there's one final sign that Jesus gives us, and I'm so thankful to get to point number six. Write these words down, worldwide evangelism. In verses 13 and 14, Jesus finishes up this part of our text by saying, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel, that's the word Good news, the good news of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Seems odd in light of all of the negative things that we've just talked about, but what Jesus has said here just makes sense because this has always been God's plan. Because of the magnificent grace of God, His plan has always been to try to make it possible for all men everywhere to be saved no matter what circumstances may be surrounding them because of the magnificent grace of God. It just makes sense. In fact, in my study, I came across someone who laid out a biblical foundation for this reality like this. I'm going to put it on the screen, and hopefully you'll be able to follow it. First of all, he, six, different, six, six different steps that, that, that support this truth that God's desire ultimately, no matter what's happening in the world, is for His grace to give people the opportunity to be saved. Number one, it's God's desire to bless all nations through uh, Abraham. Now, you have to, kind of have to kind of understand the Bible to know this truth, but if you're a student of the Bible, you know back in the book of Genesis in chapter 12, God called a man named Abraham to be the father of the nation of Israel. This was God's first step in creating the nation of Israel, the nation of the Jews, the nation or the line of people through which Jesus came. And one of the things that God told Abraham when he called him is he said this, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. When he called him, ultimately all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Number two, the church of Jesus is the spiritual seed of Abraham. So I'm not Jewish, you're not Jewish, I'm, maybe, some, maybe someone here is, but for the most part, we're not Jewish, that means we're what the Bible calls Gentiles, and, but yet Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29, if you belong to Christ, if you're a Christian, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, the promise that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Point number three, Jesus has commissioned us to take the gospel message to all nations. Uh, eventually, we are going to get to Matthew chapter 28, the last chapter, maybe, hopefully, prayerfully. We're going to get to the end. And in verses 19 and 20, we're going to see Jesus say, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so that was his commission and command to the disciples and to us is to take the gospel message all around the world. 
Number four, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, we're told specifically that, that, that the second coming of Jesus Christ may seem to be delayed today, but the reason why it seems to be delayed is because God's desire is for all men everywhere to come to repentance. God doesn't want to see people in eternal separation from him. And so his patience is seen day after day after day. Number five, the gospel must be preached to all nations and then the end will come. We just read that in Matthew chapter 24, verses four, verse 14. And then number six, Revelation chapter seven, verses nine through 14 tells us that in the last days, a multitude of people from every nation will come to Christ. Now, does this mean that every single person must hear the gospel message before Jesus returns? No. Does this mean that the entire world must become Christian before Jesus returns? No. It means the gospel must be preached in every nation before Jesus returns. And so, before Jesus returns, we're going to see an increase in worldwide evangelism. And honestly, that's something that we're seeing in the world today. Do you know that according to the Joshua Project, there are more than 7,000 unreached people groups in the world today representing over 3 billion people. And here's how you define an unreached people group. An unreached people group is defined as a group where there is no indigenous community of believers or Christians able to evangelize them as a whole. Now, I'm just reminded of how blessed I am to be a part of this church when I read about that because, remember, I've told you before, I told you at the beginning of the year that Mount Pleasant Christian Church, because of your generosity, think about this when the offering bags are passed. Mount Pleasant Christian Church, because of your generosity, is fully funding the translation of the New Testament into the language of the single largest unreached people group in the world. You're doing that. You're supporting that. When I... When I ask the question, can a single church in central Indiana change the world, I'm not just trying to turn a clever phrase. I am not using hyperbole. I mean that as literally as possible. This church, with no other partner, is fully funding the translation of the New Testament into the language of the single largest unreached people group in the world. The gospel message of Jesus is spreading around the world, and this is just another sign that the second coming of Christ may not be far away, but I wish I had time to tell you. And what's happening today, just like with all the other things that I said in the first five points, whatever is happening in the world today is nothing compared to what's going to happen in the future. The level of worldwide evangelism that's going to happen right before the return of Christ is going to be unbelievable. I wish we could talk about that from the perspective of the book of Revelation, but it just reminds us that the magnificent... Grace of God trumps everything. In a time of the worst rebellion and the worst apostasy and the worst persecution in the history of the world, people will be saved because of the grace of God. Well, there are so many things I'd like to say, but I need to bring this to an end. I knew I'd be out of time by the time I got here. So let me just mention three things to think about as we close this message and Brian and the team can come. The first thing I would say is just be concerned, but don't be afraid. The end times theology and the second coming of Christ for some reason sometimes frightens believers. Don't be afraid. No reason to be afraid. The second thing I would say is make sure your spiritual life is in order. This is how you, you can live without fear. 
Make sure your spiritual life is in order. Make sure your life is right with God. Let me just ask us just a simple, a direct question to every single person in this room and everybody listening. Do you know for sure today that if you died today, you would go to heaven? Do you know for sure? Do you have that assurance in your life? I'm asking you. I know for sure that if I died today, I'd go to heaven. There's no doubt in my mind about it at all. Do you have that same assurance? Because you can. And if you don't, then honestly, you've got a problem. But you can have it. And when you have it, you don't have to live with fear. This is not a time to play church. This is not a time to play religious. It's a time to get serious and make sure your life is right with God. It's not a time to go, just go through the motions of what you want the Christian life to be or what you've somehow made the Christian life into because it fits into your schedule that way and your other priorities that way. This is time to make sure Jesus has first place in your life because that's what he asks for. And the third thing I would say is this. In light of all of this, all of us as believers need to make sharing our faith a high priority in our life. Shame on us. Shame on us as Christians. If we get so busy with ourselves and so inwardly focused as a church that we don't see and care about, our hearts don't beat for the lost people that surround us every single day. We need to make sharing our faith a high priority in our lives.